0: So, many years ago, I used to work with college students. I actually supervised like some 40 students that worked for me in a call center. And it was actually great fun, um, because there's just something about that age. You know, people in their early 20s are full of life and certain opinions. And I remember being that age. And I really wish I was back there, because I knew how everything worked. I had it all figured out. (laughs) And I can remember sitting at the end of the shift with a couple students, um, two women in fact, and they were chatting, and I was chatting with them, and they were talking about their love lives. So you can imagine how this was going. And finally, one of them just looked at the other and she went, You just need a DTR. (laughs) I didn't know that phrase um, or that acronym, and I was like, do I want to ask do I want to know because sometimes once you know you can't unknow (laughs) and I was bold and I said so what does DTR mean and they looked at me and they said oh define the relationship you just need to define the relationship with Jim And I'm like oh and it took me a moment because I'm slow and I went oh you mean the talk You know, not the talk that, you know, parents have with their kids, you know, because we know to use these really vague phrases about important conversations um, in our lives. But I meant, oh, the romance talk or the dating talk or basically you just want to know where you stand with someone, right? Are we friends? Are we dating? Are we serious? What? And it was so funny to me just to hear them talk about, like, their relationships and and trying to figure it out because clearly there was uncertainty. There was a lack of clarity. And a lot of times when we are in a romantic relationship, we don't always have the clarity because we're kind of figuring things out, aren't we? Well, there's also the fact that I think we avoid awkward conversations because when there's uncertainty, and my husband says this, he's like, where there is confusion, there is money to be made. Meaning sometimes you can take advantage of the uncertainty, the lack of clarity. Um, But most often it's just we don't want to enter the awkward. We are uncertain of what will come because we know with the uncertainty the options are all still there, right? This could just be a dating relationship. This could be a serious relationship. This could just be friends and I could be totally off base. Well. The fact is that a lot of times though, the uncertainty in us produces anxiety. And without knowing what this relationship is about, we don't really know what we're doing. We don't know what the goal is or maybe the purpose. And it can lead to a lot of heartbreak. And sometimes that's why we avoid that conversation because it's like, I know I'm just gonna break his heart by telling him I'm not interested. Well, no, sometimes being clear is being kind more than being confusing. And so I think this is important for us in general, though, to understand where we stand in our relationships. What are the expectations? What is about the nature of what's going on here that is important to me and is important to you? And do those things line up? because when they don't there's a lot of friction and so I think it's important for us to kind of you know think about that not just in terms of romantic relationships because I don't know about you but I've been in some friendships where the expectations were way off like I expected a friend to kind of understand that she shouldn't be spilling my tea all over town right she shouldn't be sharing what I shared with her with others, that I expected a confidence to be held. Or maybe I've been in a situation where it's like, oh, you expected me to do that and I didn't and I fell short. And so sometimes we need to engage in a conversation. What are the boundaries? What are the limits? What's the goal here in this relationship because sometimes friendships are just what they're they are you know this is the friend that I go running with and that's about the limit of our friendship but that's good or what is your relationship with the world in general you know what's your relationship with God you know so I think about this and and yes it's easy to go to kind of romantic relationships and I can remember when my husband and I first said I love you and it was really cute and really sweet And I'm kind of making fun of it, but I, I do dearly love my husband, and that is one of my most precious memories of our relationship because it made clear what we were about. And it took us from, okay, we're exclusively dating, to like this purposeful couplehood that eventually led to marriage for us. And we have further defined our relationship, you know, with conversations, and some, you know, happen in the let's have a talk. And then some just happened naturally. My husband made this observation once early on in our relationship, and he said, you work with me, not against me. You work with me, not against me. And it was just an observation, it wasn't a command, it wasn't an order. But it it helped kind of clarify, one, something he valued, something he liked about our relationship. And it also clarified something and named it that I didn't realize I was doing, but I valued. And it's become language that we use with one another, and it's so kind of fun at times to talk about, like we work with one another, not against each other. We have common goals, and then we have individual goals that we help each other with. And so sometimes in, in defining what our relationship looks like, what are our values, that we find a deepening and a richness in our relationships. And it helps us understand sometimes the goals and the limits. You know, how are we going to work with one another? How are we going to kind of play with one another at times? And and how are we going to struggle with one another towards a goal together? And it allows for trust to be built because we've communicated expectations. You ever have an unmet expectation? It's really frustrating. It's really hard because you expected somebody to do this and they fell short. But did they know that you expected that of them? They may not have, so they didn't know what the goal was. They didn't know what the win was. If you expect somebody that they're going to make dinner and then they don't, but you didn't ask, I don't know that they necessarily failed in the task that you gave them mentally, but did not communicate with words. That's important sometimes, is to communicate with words. And I think it's often so much more important even in our faith and in our relationship with God. And I want to ask some questions of us today as we start to dig into our scripture. But more importantly is to think about What is your relationship with God like? How would you define it at this moment? Is it life-giving? Is it a relationship that you would describe as rich, as positive? Or does your relationship with God look more like a genie in a bottle where you just kind of call him up when you need a wish or two granted? Do you operate in life kind of like you've got it all figured out? You've got the plan at hand, and you just need God to rubber stamp it. You need to just have God bless this mess, God bless it. And I love the fact that we start to put this phrase in our laundry rooms of all places. When did it become important that our laundry rooms were places to show off? I don't have this. My laundry goes down to the dark dungeon of a basement where probably the former homeowners buried the bodies. (laughs) But clothes go down and they come back up clean. But I kind of got off on a tangent there. Um, Seriously, we sometimes operate in life like, hey, this is the life I figured out, I've planned, so God just bless it. I know it's a mess, but bless it anyway. I don't know that I would like to be treated that way myself and sometimes I experience that with my children <laughs> like I've got a plan you just you just play your part mom so what does your relationship with God look like do you invite God into every aspect of your life or do you keep him at arm's length where do you where do you stand with God And I don't know how you view it. I don't know what that question's kind of conjuring up in you today, but scripture gives us a pretty good idea about what God thinks of us, what he thinks about you, and what he thinks about me. And to best understand our relationship with God is to actually go back to the beginning, to go back to how God designed us, how we were created, for what purpose were we created. And so I want us to kind of take some time today to reorient ourselves to how God created, how God designed us to be. And so we always go back to the beginning, which is Genesis, that very first book in the Old Testament, the very first book in the Bible. And so I want us to look primarily at the first three chapters. We're going to kind of pop through them. Bill read us the main part of our passage today. Um, but when we read in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis, we see how God created. And we see this intentional, purposeful plan put into action. That God not only creates from nothing, but he also creates and gives purpose to. He assigns roles and functions to everything as he creates the cosmos, or the heavens and the earth. And as he does that, he is bringing order into chaos. And as one of his final actions in creation, God creates humanity. And we find in these verses, in Genesis 1, and it's verses 26 through 28. Let me read them for us, um, because I want to ground us here today. Let us make humanity in our image, to resemble us, so that they may take charge of the fish, of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. God created humanity in God's own image, the divine image. God created them, male and female. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fertile and multiply on Fill the earth, master it, take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Some of that may sound a little familiar or a little different if you've ever heard the phrase, be fruitful and multiply. That comes from this passage. But I want us to capitalize on that first line. Let us, this is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us, to be like us, to bear our image in this world. Now this is not a physical likeness, you know, kind of how if you've ever read anything in Greek mythology, and how they imagined the gods, you know, Zeus, Hera, Apollo, all those sorts of things. They imagined that gods were like humans, with some supernatural powers. No, this is, this is about character. This is about capacity and action here of how we are to look like God. See, our capacity, that is our creation from God, our capacity is to reflect the attributes, the character of God, and to act on God's behalf on earth. And this passage here gives us a little bit of idea of what that action looks like, where to take charge, where to master it. And those are sometimes, you know, those can be positive things. Those can be negative things is to feel like someone's, you know, bossing you around or that somebody is willing to step in and lead to take charge of a situation. And to understand that this is really a positive here because it's a privilege not an obligation it puts a whole different feel to it doesn't it that we are privileged to take charge and to master things on earth and it's about being able to co-create with God it's about taking something that needs a little guidance and giving it to them now We think about it in terms of maybe a garden. A garden left to run wild doesn't produce the best fruit. But a garden that is tended to, that is nurtured, is fruitful. That it produces a harvest that can be enjoyed. That to master an animal necessarily may mean more that you get to domesticate them. And I know how some of you feel about your pets. So I know that there is deep affection there. And so that is, that is part of that call is to create with God. And that this is a beautiful responsibility that gives us dignity and purpose here on earth. It gives us dignity and purpose because we are entrusted with this. You think about what you do when you trust somebody with something that you expect them to treat it well, to care for it, to enjoy it. That's the beauty of God's design with humanity in this order of the universe. And in all of creation, humanity has the most distinctive, the most unique creation, the most unique purpose. And that in that, we are blessed. And it's not some magic spell over us. It's the favor of God to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth. Again, a privilege, not an obligation. And when we think of it as a privilege, it's not something that most people would think to reject or to give away. And so when we have the opportunity to embrace the capacity given to us by God, it's a beautiful thing in all of creation. That we are given a mission with God to bring order to our world, just as he brought order to the earth and the heavens. That we get the opportunity to carry on the work of God here on earth, co-creating with him. And the thing is that as our relationship deepens with God, as our relationship with God gets richer, more life-giving, we embrace more of that capacity to reflect the attributes of God and act on God's behalf. This is God's design for you, for me, for all of humanity. And it's in this beautiful setting of a garden. So, what went wrong? The story really goes south in chapter 3. But I want to pop into a verse quickly in chapter 2 because we need it to understand how things go south. So, in chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, God gives humanity, He gives the people that we call Adam and Eve, those spiritual ancestors, He gives them. A command. Let me read it for us. You may eat fruit from any tree in the garden. You may eat fruit from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will certainly die. And I want us to take up two things from here. I want you to catch these two things. One They could eat from any tree but one. So say there were 100 trees in that garden. 99 are available for dinner. Just leave one alone. And then this certainly die part of it. See, this isn't an immediate thing, and that's an important distinction here. Certainly die is more that death is now a certainty but not an immediacy. Meaning if you take a bite, you're not gonna keel over immediately. But now death is on the table where before it wasn't. So now humanity is mortal. So let's jump into chapter three and see how this goes south. Oops, forgot, Bill already read it for us. So Bill read for us our passage, and it begins with a serpent, right? It begins with the snake. And some of you are fans of snakes, and some of you are not so fans of snakes. Um, But luckily, we do not handle snakes in this church. That will not be coming anytime soon. Sorry to disappoint some of you. But the serpent is described as shrewd or cunning, more so than any other animal in creation. And we can see his cunning on display with our passage, that he starts to ask Eve a question. And his questions are leading. And if you watch any courtroom drama, this is what the attorneys always do. They ask very leading questions. A good attorney will never ask a question they don't already know the answer to. And the serpent is trying to get Eve to restate God's command in her own words and Eve poor Eve naively falls for it and she starts to engage the questions and she adds to God's command and she adds not just yeah we'll die but even if we touch it so we can't even touch the tree the fruit of that tree and I think it's so curious that she makes God's command more restrictive, more limiting than what God originally asked. I don't know what to exactly make of that, but it makes it very clear that what Eve restates to the serpent is her version, not God's. This is really a misrepresentation Of what God originally said. And she indicates that she believes that she will die as soon as she takes a bite of that fruit. And this is what we need to pay attention to here, is that the serpent attacks Eve's version, not God's command. He doesn't deny what God has commanded he denies Eve's version of it, which is a misrepresentation. Basically, the serpent is saying, I don't think death is so immediate. Don't worry that death is really a threat if you take a bite. There's really nothing to worry about here along those lines. And this plants doubt. And that doubt plays into, I think, so much of what some of us do. Is that we think God is holding out on us. We think God is trying to rob us of good things in life or hold us back from enjoying life. Like God is keeping something from you, Eve, and it's the good stuff. Well, let's look at what happens. Because this plays into an ancient worldview. This played into this idea that people wanted the power of God. That's really what the serpent is offering when he says, just take a bite. We want the power of God. We want this knowledge, but we really don't want to have to have the character it requires to use it well. You see, again, going back to kind of Greek and Roman mythology, we see that the gods of jealously guarded those superpowers that they had because that gave them status that gave them superiority and power over humanity that's what we see in Greek and Roman mythology and we kind of see this playing out in this situation with Eve and this serpent because this is the picture that the serpent is painting of God God's holding out on you God knows you know this about you But this is a lie, my friends. This is not the truth, this is far from it, because as we know from that design of God, that God wants us to be like him. He doesn't want to keep that likeness from us. He wants to share his goodness with us. And in the garden, This is the kicker, my friends. In the garden, humanity already has the capacity to be like God. She doesn't need to take a bite to do that. But the question is then, why would God put this tree in the garden? Why would God put a tree there that they're not to eat from? Is it a test? Is it a way to trick them? I got you guys. And my mind kind of wants to go there because I'm very kind of cynical and distrustful at times. But when I sit with it, I realize that's not the God I know. God isn't trying to trick me or deceive me or hold out on me. And I wonder, is this less of a test and more of a not yet? Less of a test and more of a not yet. Meaning God placed the tree in the garden because it had a purpose, but that purpose wasn't realized yet. It had a later purpose that perhaps humanity wasn't ready for it. Yet, that the timing is different than what we expect. That we're being asked to wait for it. We saw this last week when we read through the temptation of Christ. Where Christ is presented the kingdom of the world. You can have all of this. All of these kingdoms will bow down before you, Jesus. Jesus turns it down. Not because it's a bad thing for Jesus to rule. But because it's not time yet. Jesus has to accomplish his primary mission first. So it was a not Yet. And what makes me think a little bit more that Adam and Eve weren't ready for the knowledge that comes from this fruit, is to look at their response. Look at how they handle this knowledge. See, once they take a bite, once they sit down for a snack, they feel shame. Um, shame I don't know about you but when I do something good when I enjoy something good I don't feel shame and I don't hide but this is exactly what Adam and Eve do once they take a bite and their eyes are opened it says and they feel shame and they hide and they start working on some clothing because they realize that they are naked See, if they were ready to know what this tree imparted they wouldn't seek to hide they wouldn't be ashamed the knowledge from that tree the knowledge of good and evil is about the wisdom to discern and see distinctions to be able to navigate So maybe perhaps to taking that bite from that tree, Adam and Eve were a bit more, I don't know, childlike. Maybe a little bit more naive. And being naive is not a bad thing. It's a state that we all go through. I mean, look at how comfortable they are being naked before versus when they're trying to make it work with some big leaves. You know, I think about, like, just their response to nakedness and then the response of, like, children's response to nakedness. In college, I had a, an advisor, and he had um, three children. He had triplets, actually. I know, that's a lot, um, all at once. And he asked, you know, while I was working on campus over the summer, he's like, you babysit them for the evening?" And I'm like, okay, that'd be fine. I think they were like three or four at the time. And yeah, it was a lot. Um, I bit off more than I could chew, really. But I'm like, I can do this. Um, And at some point in the evening, we were getting ready for bed, and they had taken off their clothes, and they were streaking through the house. And I was horrified. Because I had this image of Glenn and Susie walking in through the door, and their kids are running naked through the house. And they'd be like, what kind of babysitter are you? <laughs> I managed to, you know, bribe them to put their clothes back on. And everything ended up well in the evening. But it was just so funny. they in the world. Naked time was a good time. Children have no problem with that. And Adam and Eve had no problem with naked time. Until they gain that new perspective from that fruit. And it may have been a little bit more of a mature perspective, but it was not one I think they were ready for. I don't think it was a healthy one for them at that point. They weren't ready for it, not yet, because of that shame and that hiding that dysfunctional behavior that comes out of them after this. Some things just need time and we cannot rush them. We need to grow into them. We need to allow time for them to grow. See, just giving knowledge doesn't give wisdom or maturity right away. You can explain something till you're blue in the face, but you cannot give understanding. As a as a former foster parent, I received a lot of training in trauma and trauma-informed care. And one of the things they talked about a lot was parentified children, parentified children. These were kids who were forced to grow up too fast. They were often an older sibling who were now taking care of their younger siblings, as if they were the parent themselves. They had taken on responsibility too early. And it caused trauma in those children because it forced something on them too fast. They stepped into a role that wasn't theirs because they needed to. Some things Need time some things need to be a not yet and so often in this world what comes at us as a temptation is often to be like God it sounds good it seems good and the most effective temptations give the appearance of being good Appealing to this God-given desire for goodness. That we are deceived because it looks good. It looks good on the outside. It looks good, but up close it isn't. It's like the most awful catfish filter or a counterfeit bill. It tricks us. Because it looks good. This world can deceive us with evil that looks good. And often it will play on our desire for independence from good. Independence is a good thing, right? That's what we want for our children. That's what we want for people in life is that they can be fully functioning adults. Sometimes what I say to my children, my goal is to help you become a fully functioning adult. And that's great in terms of humanity, in terms of human relationships at times, but we can take our independence to a level of extreme that forces us in a corner where we will never accept help and we will push against God with everything that we are because we refuse to be dependent on anyone or anything. And in that we buy the lie We buy the lie that we should be unlimited, that we should be limitless, that we shouldn't have to live within the limits that God or others set for us. But limits, my friends, are necessary. Because without limits, there is no true freedom. Without limits, there is no true freedom. That actually is something that the philosopher, John Locke, wrote a lot about And if his name even sounds vaguely familiar, you paid attention for a moment in history class because a lot of his writings were inspiration for our declaration of independence. So even in declaring our independence, we recognize that limits were good because within limits, freedom can exist. See, God offers us Such freedom and dependence on him freedom in Christ can only be found in our dependence on him God offered us the privilege of freedom within the limits that he set and a joy that is found in dependence on him but when we reject that dependence on God as Adam and Eve do We choose a far more costly dependence. We choose a life that will cost us so much more because we choose to depend on ourselves. We choose to depend on the resources, those limited resources that we have. We choose to depend on the created, not the creator. We choose to depend on ourselves rather than a limitless God. we buy that lie we buy the lie that God is holding out on us we buy the false safety of autonomy rather than surrendering and leaning into Jesus and we hide out maybe not literally but figuratively We put on our masks. We put on our armor. We act like we don't need anything from anyone. We cover ourselves with wilting fig leaves when God is offering us a leather jacket to cover our nakedness. And as Bill read for us, God describes a life apart for him. He describes what life will be like for Adam and Eve independent of him which is what they wanted when they bit into that fruit they said we want to be separate from you God we want to go our own way we want to make our own way and God let them they wanted false power rather than to wait to receive from God The thing is, the blessing that God gives isn't lost. It's just changed. See, death is now a reality, and that creates an urgency. And I find that I'm not best when I feel an urgency. But now that we have that, we have a ticking ticking time bomb waiting for us, don't we? We know death is coming. Maybe not today. We might not get hit by that bus that's roaming but death will come. And this is not God's choice for us. But in response to their sin, there are limits in the present world for us. Where there was initial kind of innocence or that nakedness, there is now the need for clothing for a loss of innocence. Where before we could eat from the tree of life, never tasting death, we now know mortality. We know the suffering that comes in that. Where there was a whole garden of groceries for the picking, there is now hard work and labor. And there are now these things called power struggles in our relationships. And most importantly, we are separate. We are Separate from God. Separate from that life-giving relationship from our creator. This is what we choose when we choose independence. When we try to cut God out. When we try to go it alone without him. We miss out. And we create these hardships and these struggles. We create a false independence rather than the beautifully designed, the beautifully designed interdependence and draw from that beautifully defined relationship with God. But even in our sin, God has grace for us. We see that grace as God creates clothing for Adam and Eve, preparing them for the road that they chose Providing a remedy for their shame. See, in our design, we were meant, entrusted to co create with God, tending and nurturing and filling creation with more goodness. And to do this, we were given a capacity to be like God in His attributes and to act on His behalf. that, yes, there is a curse now that disrupts the blessing. It disrupts our relationship with God, but it does not end it. God always makes a way home for us. Whether we choose to take it. Jesus shows us a way back to that restored relationship with God. God in the form of Jesus mends the disruption that we created. Healing and restoring us to full relationship with God. So that we can live into that capacity. To live out that call as bearing the image of God to this world. Jesus, in the New Testament, is described as the new Adam, the new humanity. That through Adam, death came into the world. And through Christ, new life is offered to all. Christ makes a way through his death and resurrection for us to embrace who we were always meant to be so my question for us today is where are we too dependent on self where do you have this need for control from autonomy from God what are you kind of falsely holding on to What have you grabbed hold of that was maybe a not yet? I invite you to name it and to let it go. What do you need to let go of to be more of your authentic self? To be more of who you were always designed to be? I shared last week that I struggle in asking for help. It really is a struggle for me, and it is a problem. <laughs> I know somebody think it, some folks think it is a really admirable quality to be so independent, but it wrecks havoc on my relationships. I create more struggle for myself than you could ever imagine, because I cannot ask for help. because I am trying to be my own God. Not in some like lofty, I'm better than everybody else, but that I don't need anybody else. And it wrecks not only my relationships with others, but my relationship with God in particular. And I miss out. So, Last week, I shared that one of my Lenten practices, one of the things I want to practice in the next 40 days is to daily ask for help. To need. It is humbling. It is. It goes against so much of what I have created within myself. And yet in doing so, I allow God to recreate within me, to renew me, to restore me, because I am allowing him and others in. It is creating some beauty that I never imagined. So I'm trying to let go, one request at a time, one day at a time. It's small steps for me but it's already becoming very powerful and reminding me of how I was designed. I was designed to lean into God, to rely on God first and foremost. And it's a beautiful thing. So what what will you let go of to better lean into God? Maybe it's the simple process of starting to pray about something first. Inviting God in first before you make that decision. That rather than simply charging forward in life, charting your own course, that you would pause and say, God, what would you have for me? rather than creating the mess and asking God to bless it, that you would first ask for God's blessing and see where he would take you. Listening first for God and inviting his spirit in, leaning more and more into him, learning to trust him in all things. Amen.